For the sermon today, I'd like to ask a couple of questions to begin with. Most of us remember when we would go to the feast years ago that Mr. Armstrong would always ask the question at the feast, almost invariably, why are you here, brethren? Why are you here? And he would ask that question so that our minds would get focused on why were we at the feast? Why do we go to the feast? I'd like to ask the question today, why are you here in the church of God today? Are you here to fellowship, which is not wrong? Are you here to socialize again, which is not wrong? Are you here because it's the closest church to go to? Because it's convenient, sometimes people use that as a criteria today. Young people, perhaps you want to attend church so you can go to summer camp next summer because you'll need a ministerial recommendation. So you want to make sure you're there and and seen. Uh, Others of you, well, I I want to find a mate in the church, so this is probably as good a place to go as any. These are some of the reasons that people go to church. But why are you here? Are you here for deeper more significant reasons. We need to think about these things. Many of you are here because you recognize that God has given his church, the church of God, an understanding of prophecy, an understanding of the plan of God, and an understanding of biblical truths that the world just doesn't understand. And that's why you're here. That's why I am here. And some people think today, well, you're, you're, you're being judgmental. You know, there are a lot of nice people. And a lot of people love Jesus. But God has given his church an understanding of the truth that the world has not been given. Notice in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told his own disciples this very thing. And many in the world today seem to have forgotten these comments. But Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, let's just read several verses. The disciples came to him, and they said to him, Why do you speak to these people, to them, the crowd here, in parables? I remember reading this when I was in graduate school 30-some years ago, and one of our teachers there was very religious, and I had been reading the Bible, just learning about the truth. So I was playing around, and I shouldn't have done this. But I said, uh, Dr. So-and-so, I said, why did Christ speak in parables? He said, well, so that people could understand it better. Well, that's not what we're going to read. Jesus was asked, why do you speak in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you, to my disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. You have been given an understanding of the truth of God and the plan of God, but to them it has not been given. The world does not understand, and here is one of the reasons why. For whoever has, to him will be more be given, and so on. He says, therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing, you will hear, and you shall not understand. Seeing, you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed. Their eyes they have closed. 
lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. You have been given a very special privilege if you understand the truth of God. You've been called. Your mind has been opened. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men down through history desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We are here, brethren, because God has opened our minds and opened our eyes to understand the truth of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God. But another question, why has God opened our minds? Why has he given the church of God an understanding of prophecy and an understanding of the plan of God that he's not given to this world? Why has he done that? Why is he doing that? Are we going to be held accountable for something that the world is not going to be held accountable for? Turn to Luke chapter 12. Learn to, turn to Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> Luke chapter 12 and verse 48. It says, But he who did not know yet committed things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with a few, but... It says, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. To whom much is given, much will be required. If God has opened our minds to understand the truth of God, he's done that for a reason. And things will be required of us because we've been given an understanding that the world has not been given. We are going to be held accountable for what we know and what we understand. You know, Jesus called and trained his disciples, and he raised up a church, the church of God, for a purpose. And that purpose was to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God to this world, to proclaim and explain Bible prophecies to this world. We have been given a mission that we need to accomplish. We have a mission that we're going to be held accountable for. If we accomplish it, we'll be rewarded. If we don't accomplish it, we will not be rewarded. You've probably heard the phrase, mission impossible. What comes to your mind? Tom Cruise movies. Mission impossible, but he usually does it. (laughs) He accomplishes the mission. I want to use another phrase here at the beginning of the sermon. Not mission impossible because we've been called to accomplish a mission. That's not impossible. It's going to be a challenge. But I want to use another phrase, mission accountable or mission accountability. We're going to be held responsible for accomplishing the mission that we have been given as a church. I want to talk about that mission today, and I want to put this mission in perspective I want to put it in perspective by contrasting the mission that we have been given with many of the missions that other people have gotten involved with down through history. 
and get wrapped up in today, which are off in a totally different direction. I want to show clearly today why our mission matters, why we need to be focused on our mission. I've entitled the sermon, Why Our Mission Matters. Why it matters. Because I think the more clearly we see and understand our mission, the more we can put our hearts in that mission and really feel committed to accomplishing the mission that God has given to his church. So let's talk a little bit about the mission that God has given to his church today. I've got about seven points that we'll try and go through. First point is that in our mission, we have been commissioned basically to preach the good news, to preach about the gospel of the coming kingdom of God, the world tomorrow, tomorrow's world, when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, sets up his government on this earth, and begins to change everything on this earth. This is the mission that we have been called to achieve. It is a mission and a message that matters because it's going to impact literally everyone on the face of this earth. It's going to change the course of history. This is what we have been called to be part of, not just to come here and sit in church, not just to come here and sing a few songs, not just to come here and listen to a sermon or sermonette. We have been called to prepare to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth, to change the course of history, to end the suffering, you know, to sink the pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> I mean, to put an end to these things, to put an end to these things. It is a very different gospel than many people will listen to tomorrow morning, Sunday morning here in Charlotte or other places around the world. They're going to hear about going off to heaven, sitting on a cloud and playing harps and loving everybody and doing all these things. We have a very different message. Notice just quickly a couple of the scriptures in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And Mr. Armstrong used to go back to this all the time, but it's a very fundamental scripture because if we get off course, don't understand or don't apply or don't grasp the mission that's being talked about here, then we get off course totally. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is what he was talking about, about a coming kingdom that's going to be set up on this earth, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, change your life. Now get your life straightened out. Quit playing games and believe the gospel. Now get your heart involved with the mission that you have to perform. Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus was calling his disciples. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4, he was a mission-oriented person. He was calling them to a mission. It says, now Jesus, verse 18 of Matthew chapter 4, now Jesus walking by the sea of Galilee saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. You're, you're playing around with those smelly fish. 
He says, I'm calling you to become fishers of men, to learn how to reach people's hearts and minds. I had an opportunity to give some lectures at a college near Pasadena a number of years ago, and I asked Dr. Hay for advice. I said, what should I talk about? What should I cover? He said, plant questions in their mind. (laughs) He said, plant unanswerable questions in their mind. (laughs) Get them to think. You know, rattle their cage. Now, he didn't say that, but that's, you know, those, that's my terminology. <laughs> you know, shake them up a little bit. So I had the mail processing department kind of watch the mail for the next week after I was down there, and they picked off several letters. There's one lady said, I just wanted to thank that man from your college from, for coming down and speaking to my son's class. He is now going back to church every Sunday. <laughs> Rattled his cage, but he went in the wrong direction. (laughs) But he was looking for answers. Jesus said, I have called you to become fishers of men. We're sending out thousands of pieces of material every year, reading material, books, booklets, articles, tapes, various things. We're involved in a mission of spreading a message, of proclaiming the truth of God. Then immediately they left their nets. He was able to talk with them, got them excited, and they decided um, maybe there's something better than fishing for fish. Fishing for human beings is going to be more effective. There's a, a bigger payoff at the end. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat, mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately, now why did they go immediately? Unless he explained a lot more about the mission of what was involved, what the rewards were. You can read through the book of Matthew, and he talked about you're going to be over cities. There's going to be a reward. Whatever you give up now, you're going to get back a hundredfold. That would be exciting. He made the future exciting to them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. In Matthew chapter 10, a little bit more about the mission. Matthew chapter 10. It is a focused mission, and there's a time sequence that we need to follow with that mission. We need to understand these things. Matthew 10, verse 1, And when he called his twelve disciples, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and disease. List the names. Then in verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them. He said, Here's your marching orders. This is your mission. Go not into the way of the Gentiles at that time. That came later. But they were to go first to the Jews uh, and to the Israelites. Go not into the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They had to know where those people were. They had to understand who they were in order to fulfill this mission. As we've covered in other sermons, some people today say, we know this this idea of the Israelites and so on just isn't that important. Oh, really? (laughs) Jesus said, you are to go to them. You know, I have called them. I have blessed them. I wanted them to be an example to the world. They blew it. You've got a message to deliver. You need to explain to them why they're going to reap certain punishments. Because they've rejected my instructions. That's a message that needs to be delivered to them. 
They're going to bear the brunt of the tribulation. They need to understand why. And then after that, they were to go to the Gentiles. But as you go, saying, preach, or say, as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is coming. We need to be prepared for that. Verse 16, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You're going to have to be careful. You're going to have to be wise in how you present the information. You know, we could get on television, jump up and down, you bunch of jerks out there. <laughs> you know, we could say other things that would bring all kind of persecution. We've got to deliver a message in a way that's understood, but not in a way that gets us thrown into jail yet. <laughs> that time will probably come. It says, be wise as serpents and harmless as a dove. Beware of men, human beings, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be beaten for your message. Read Acts 13, Acts 14. Paul went through a number of cities. He was beaten. He was left for dead. But he had a passion to preach the gospel. He turned around, came right back through those cities and preached again. I'm sure people said, this guy must be crazy. <laughs> Last time I was here, they almost killed him. And here he is again, popping up with the same message. Jesus said it's not going to be easy. Verse 23, many people think the work was over or the work ended when Mr. Armstrong died. Wrong. Just read the book. But when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You won't have done everything. You won't have completed it. You were to complete as much as we can in the time that we have. But the implication here, the work's not going to be over. You need to, you need to stay focused on that until Christ returns. It's a mission. Matthew 24, 14. You're familiar with the scripture, or you should be. Matthew 24, verse 14, what does it say? It says, this, and this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom of God will be preached. It will be preached in all the world for a witness, not to convert everybody, but merely to explain this is what's coming. This is the true gospel. This is the truth. This is what's going to happen to all nations, and then the end will come. That is our mission, to go to all the world preaching this message. Let's notice just a couple of scriptures about this message. In Revelation chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11. We'll go to the Feast of Tabernacles this year, and hopefully we will hear many sermons and sermonettes talking about the coming kingdom of God, what it's going to be like. But this is the message that we have delivered. In Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Not the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Down in verse 17. 
And 24 elders are saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. You have taken control of this earth. You're going to straighten things out. This is the message that we have to deliver. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints. Now, this is what the disciples wanted to talk about with Jesus after his resurrection. Let's talk about the kingdom. Let's talk about what we're going to be doing. They were excited about those things. You're going to reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and you're going to destroy those who destroy the earth. God created this earth as a habitat for human beings. And when you see it, when it's beautifully cultivated and taken care of, it's inspiring. But we also have to see the the poverty, the ignorance, the pollution, and everything else that we've done to this earth. This earth is hanging out in space like a jewel. It's unique. It's been given to us as a heritage. And we've tromped it under our feet. We've messed it up. And we're going to be held responsible for that as human beings. And we need to deliver these messages. Revelation 5 and verse 10, you're familiar with this. Some people today are being told, well, this is an overworked scripture. You know, this is is an overworked scripture. There's just too much emphasis placed on it. Revelation 5 and verse 10, it says, And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on this earth. This is our future to reign on this earth, to straighten things out. It's not an overworked scripture. Go back to Revelation chapter 1, verses 5, verse 5 and 6. It says, from Jesus, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. All these scriptures say the same thing, and we can look at a number of other scriptures that say the same thing. But let's look at Isaiah chapter 2 for just a minute. A couple of more descriptions briefly about this coming kingdom of God and what it's going to be like. Because the more real the kingdom of God is to you and to me, the more excited we're going to be about fulfilling the mission that we've been given. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days, at the end of the age, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. God is going to, Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth, set up his kingdom on this earth, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations will flow to it. Everybody on the face of the earth is going to look towards Jerusalem. And you and I have been called to staff positions in Jerusalem and be sent out from there as examples, as ambassadors from there. It's no wonder the disciples got excited. They they had a foretaste. They could see what was coming. They understood these scriptures. They've been studying these things for a long time. They understood about a kingdom. The early church understood about a kingdom that would be set up on this earth. And it was tossed out the window several hundred years later after Jesus Christ. 
All nations will flow to it. They will look to Jerusalem as the world capital. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the headquarters, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. He's going to show us the way to peace. He's going to show us how to rebuild cities. He's going to show us a lot of things. We're going to have the opportunity to do these things if we're preparing, if we're ready, if our heart is in the work. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. Zion is Jerusalem. The law is going to go forth from Jerusalem. We're going to have a part in doing that. And he shall judge between nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. And we've watched on the news recently the Israeli tanks charging into Lebanon and then all the uh, hardware that was shot from Lebanon by the Hezbollah down in Jerusalem. All these things are going to be picked up, melted down, <laughs> and turned into agricultural implements, the multi-purpose tool that uh, Mr. <laughs> Bonjour was talking about, instead of guns and rifles and tanks and airplanes and things like that. This is what's coming. Now, some people say, oh, this is a pipe dream. You know, This is just all spiritual what it's talking about. Turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel is explaining to Nebuchadnezzar about the vision that he just had. Daniel is explaining something very profound. In verse 28, it says, There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. He said, King Nebuchadnezzar, you have just been given a vision that encapsulates world history down to the end of the world. God has just revealed to you in outline what's going to happen right down to the end of the age. And it talks about these four empires would rise and fall. And down in verse um, 44 and 45, at the end of the story, And in the days of these kings, these ten kings are going to rise in Europe, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, all these worldly kingdoms, and it will stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold, The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. It's going to happen. It's not a pipe dream. It's not a wild idea. It's going to happen. This is the mission that we have been given to proclaim, something that is sure something that's going to happen. And we're seeing prophecies coming alive today. We've been talking about for 40 or 50 years. They are happening. These things are coming to pass. It's sure. It's real. We could look at other scriptures in Isaiah 9 where it talks about Christ is going to come back as the Prince of Peace and establish a government It's going to go on and on and on without end. It's going to bring justice to this earth. 
We can turn to Isaiah 35 where it talks about the deserts are going to blossom like a rose. Diseases are going to be eliminated. It's going to take some time to do these things. But this is the future that we have to look forward to. It's the future we have to look forward to and be part of. Now, we hear these sermons and we hear these scriptures read periodically. We go to the feast, we'll hear these scriptures. I think sometimes it's, it's, temp, it's tempting to take these things for granted. Well, I know that. <laughs> You're not telling me anything new. But, you know, if we contrast the mission that we have been given with the missions that other people have gotten involved with over the years, Maybe we can grasp more fully how unique and how special our mission is. You know, World War I was fought to end all wars. It was called the Great War, and it was supposed to end all wars. And they got together in the 1920s and established the League of Nations. It was supposed to solve all the problems. It didn't. It failed. Within 20 years of the end of World War I, there was another world war. And it was another mission that the Germans came up with and the Italians came up with, fascism, Nazism, National Socialism. National Socialism was supposed to be you know, the solution to the Depression and the solution to Germany's problems. And they were going to establish a thousand-year Reich a glorious thing that was going to bring peace to, to Europe and unite everybody. How long did it last? The thousand-year Reich lasted about 10 or 11 or 12 years. And it ended with Europe in ashes, with some 60 million people dead. That was the end of that dream of National Socialism. But people got involved with it. They got excited about it. They were beating drums and having big parades, torchlight parades. They were going to establish a thousand-year right. The dream ended in a nightmare. Then they tried to establish the United Nations. It was going to solve the problems. The United Nations is a talking shop. People get together and talk. It took them almost a month to figure out what to do in the Middle East. They promised troops. The troops are not there yet. It's not going to solve the world's problems, but it's a dream. Some people say the United Nations is the best and the last hope for human beings. It's not the best. It's not the last. There are better things coming, and that's part of the message that we have to deliver. Today, as you read in the news report, maybe just look at this quickly, the news and prophecy section here, Islam trumps Arabism. This is what's happening in the Middle East today. Uh, breaking in here partway into the article, it says the perceived triumph, that is the perceived triumph of the Hezbollah in Lebanon. In other words, they were able to bloody the nose of the Israelis. They didn't win outright, but they, they stood up to the Israelis. The perceived triumph of the Hezbollah in Lebanon has produced a wave of pro-Islamic euphoria that is sweeping over the Middle East where political Islam where, Islam, where Islamic people get involved with the government. They want to run the show, establish Islamic law. 
where political Islam is seen as the antidote to the failures of Arab nationalism. You know, they've tried to get together a number of times, comes apart, doesn't work. Communism, which has failed. You know, 1917 in Russia, they had a big revolution. The communists were going to, you know, remake everything, central planning, uh, make new human beings, you know, you put everything together in a common pot, lasted 70 years, killed how many million people, and it collapsed. Here was another dream. They had a mission, but it failed. It ended in disaster. Now they're promoting in the Middle East Islam, and Islam is seen as the solution, the antidote to failed Arabism to communism, to socialism, and the false promise of American-style democracy. We went in and said, we're going to bring peace, we're going to bring democracy. What's happening in Iraq? Slaughter. People are going after each other. It's not working over there. It's not going to work. But the hope is, for many people in the Middle East, Islam is the solution. Establishing Islamic law will be the solution. One phrase I came across in an article recently it just shows the passion that these people have, but it's a misguided passion. They say the Koran is our constitution. Muhammad is our prophet. Muhammad is our prophet. Uh, what were some of the other ones here? The Koran is our constitution. Muhammad is our prophet. Jayad is our path. Good, a good fight. That's our path. And becoming martyrs for Allah is our wish. They can go out and get killed. It's not going to last. It's not going to work. The desire of these people is to establish Muslim states in the Middle East where they institute uh, Islamic law. And their hope is we establish some states and then eventually we'll establish a worldwide caliphate where Islamic law will govern the world. They think big. This is their mission. Now, I would encourage you, I came across a book recently entitled Differences, the Bible and the Koran. And it takes subjects and it gives you quotes from the Bible and it gives you quotes from the Koran. The Pope thinks that uh, if we all just sit down and dialogue, we can arrive at a peaceful solution. Read what the Koran says about a number of things and the contrast with the Bible. Let me just read a couple of things here. In the Bible, it talks about uh, Luke 6, 7, 6.27. You don't need to remember all the scriptures. But Jesus said, I say unto you, which here, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. What does the Koran say? And slay them wherever you catch them. And turn them out from where they have turned you out. For persecution is worse than slaughter. But fight them. If they fight you, slay them. <laughs> this is the religion that wants to establish a worldwide caliphate. I could go through a number of other things, but it's scary to read these things. You're going to sit down and dialogue with these people? You know, they want to kill us. They said, you kill our civilization, we're going to kill yours. This is where they're coming from, but this is their mission. This is their focus. It's not going to work. I came across an article on the Internet where the, uh, 
The Pope was interviewed on German television. Very interesting interview. No self-promotion, nothing like that. He was just saying, we need a unifying figure. (laughs) The world needs a unifying figure to unify all the diversity and bring it into unity. Here I am. (laughs) I'm ready to help. What is the vision that he's selling? He says, people are searching for something today. And he said, faith is the answer. Believing is beautiful. Okay, what does that mean? Faith is the answer. Believing is beautiful. Uh, He says, we all need to experience the joy of belonging to a huge universal community, a world church. He said we had a foretaste of that in the funeral of uh, Pope John Paul II. He said Rome was filled with hundreds of thousands of people. They were all singing. They were all there together. And then they went home to their stuffy apartments and went back to paying their bills. You know, being in Rome and at the funeral was was not the solution to the world problems. John Aguin and his wife were there. They described what the situation was like. They said it was was really moving. Hundreds of thousands of people, and somebody would start singing Ave Maria. He said, we must have sang it 20 times while we were standing in line. And then someone would have some sort of a cheer that they would do. This is not the solution to the world's problems. It's a big emotional thing. You do feel like you're part of something, but that's not the solution to the world's problems today. But this is what hundreds and thousands and millions of Catholics are being offered. We have a mission to proclaim the gospel about a coming kingdom of God that's going to happen that is the answer to the world's problems. This is our mission. This is our challenge to proclaim a message that is going to happen. I think if we can grasp and and, and look at the contrasts to the other missions that people have gotten involved with. There are many people in Europe today that think if we can just unite Europe in one government, we're going to prevent wars from ever happening in Europe again. I mentioned I was riding up the Rhine in a train with an older gentleman. And we started talking, and I asked him, I said, what are your thoughts on the EU? He said, well, they tell us we need it for economic reasons. And he says, they tell us it's going to prevent another war. He says, but I have my doubts. This guy was no fool. He'd run a number of businesses. He was very sharp. But he recognized this this stuff about uh, uniting Europe and preventing any other future wars over there. He didn't buy it. See, we've been called to be part of a church that has a mission to proclaim about a coming kingdom of God that's going to bring peace and joy to this earth. We're going to be held responsible for delivering that message. Let's look at a couple of other aspects of our mission. Our mission is to warn the nations of this world, the Israelite nations as well as the world, about the real dangers that lie ahead. Things are not going to get better. The United Nations is not going to solve the world's problems. Many people are being told today, well, we can't know the future, so, you know, don't get too excited. The Bible reveals the future. We can know the future. We can know what to watch for 
You know, Jesus was asked, what's going to be the sign of your coming to the end of the age? He said, watch for this, watch for this, watch for this. This is part of our message to deliver that. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. He said, watch for these things. Keep your eyes open. Don't be blindsided. And we've got to proclaim that message. Again, there's some people that are saying today, look, we don't want to focus on the negative, on the bad news. We just want to focus on the good news, that God loves everybody. You go back and read through the prophets. Before the nation of Israel fell, God sent prophets to the nation of Israel to warn them about what was coming. You read Isaiah 58, verse 1. It says, cry aloud, spare not, show my people their sins. Explain to them why they're going to reap the consequences that are coming. Very clear message. Jeremiah, chapter 2. Same message to Jeremiah. He said, look, I'm going to, <laughs> you've got a message to deliver. They're not going to like it, but you tell them anyways. Because they've turned their back on me. Ezekiel, the same message. A major forehead hard against theirs. You've got to get up there and tell them. They're not going to like it, but tell them anyways. You need to do that. Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel 33, and says, if you tell them and they change, you're going to be rewarded. If you don't tell them and they don't know, you're going to be punished with them. Very clear. And this whole idea, well, we don't want to talk about the bad news. Bad news is we have to tell. <laughs> it's that simple. It's part of the mission. You can't just pick and choose, well, I don't want to talk about that. I'd rather talk about this. No, we've got to deliver a message. We have a mission to accomplish. It's not a mission impossible, but it's a mission we're going to be held accountable for. And we need to understand that. Third part of our mission is to feed the flock. To feed the flock of God. Jesus told Peter and the disciples that three times. John 21, verses 15 through 19. He said, feed my flock, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. You know, as a church and as a ministry and as a work, we can't just talk about the things that we like to talk about. We've got to provide meat in due season. We've got to address the needs that people have. Notice in Matthew 24, very interesting scripture when we put it in context. Matthew 24, beginning verse 45 and verse 46. <clears throat> it says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his master has made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, finds him so doing. You know, generally, we tend to think of meat in due season. Well, we've got to preach about the holy days when the holy days come around. But what is the context of, of this comment? It's the end of Matthew 24, talking about the end of the age. We've got to talk about the end of the age and how we're going to recognize when it's coming. This is the context of the meat in due season here. 
of explaining we are approaching the end of the age. And some people get nervous talking about that. Well, how do we know? You know, they've been talking about the end of the world for, for centuries. When was it possible to destroy all life on this earth? In the 1400s? 1800s? 1920? Try 1945 to 1955 with atomic and hydrogen bombs. That's when it became possible to fulfill some of the scriptures here. We are approaching the end of the age. We need to understand that, not panic about it, but be prepared for it. This is the meet and do season that's being talked about here. Again, we can't afford to just get up here and talk about our personal theories. Well, heres I know what the church teaches about a verse, but here's what I think the verse means. And you get out all your books. And that's not how we can approach things. That's taking prerogatives that we don't have. You know, we get several doctrinal papers every week. God has revealed this new truth to me. And if you ministers just get with it, then, then God can bless us more because God has revealed this to me. That's not how God does these things. You read Acts 15. It was the council there that got together, discussed the issue, and made a decision. But people do these things from time to time. I don't like the decision that you made. I'm going to start my own church. Can't do those things. You know, we've got to provide meat in due season. We've got to do things God's way. We've got to help people understand the issues that they face today. I got a letter recently. This is one of the issues we need to be addressing from time to time. It says, do you consider yourselves to be the only true church? Interesting question. Are we the only true church? Turn to Revelation 2 and 3. Let the Bible answer the question. <clears throat> Revelation 2 and 3 talks about the eras that the church would go through. Some people believe there are no such thing as eras. And yet God has given us this information to help us understand where we are in time. Just noticing quickly, Revelation uh, 2 verse 18, it talks about the church of Thyatira. Again, when you look back on history, these things begin to fall into place. This appears to apply basically to people that lived around 1000 A.D. to about 1400 A.D. The Waldensian peoples would fall into this period of time. The Lollards in England would fall into this period of time. Uh, there are remnants of the Waldensian churches around today. I think this is what we need to understand. Drive up here to Valdez, about an hour from here, a little bit north of Gastonia. There's a Waldensian church up there, a Waldensian Presbyterian church. It's a remnant of the Waldensian era, but they keep Sunday. They probably keep Christmas. You know, their candlestick has moved on. Those people are still around, the remnants of them. A couple years ago, Mr. and Mrs. Clore and I were able to visit some Waldensian churches up in the Waldensian Valleys around Turin, North Italy. The Waldensian church in Italy is now joined with the Methodist church. It's a Waldensian Methodist church. They keep Sunday. They keep Christmas. This is what happened to these people. They compromised their beliefs. 
And this is something that has happened to each one of these eras down through time. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Angel of the church of Sardis write. Again, Mr. Armstrong and others have felt that the people that Mr. Armstrong came in contact with in the 30s were part of the Sardis church, part of the Sardis era of the church. Talked with Dr. Meredith. Talked with Mr. Partian about their experiences with these people. They were nice people. They believed in God, had different perspectives on things. But notice what it says. Again, in answer to this question, do you believe that you're the only true church? In verse 4, it says, You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What the Bible says is there are people even in the Sardis era that God is going to have in his kingdom. They are part of the church of God, but most of these people have compromised their beliefs. There are still remnants of these people around today. We talked with some of them up in New England a number of years ago. It was interesting. John Halford was there, and they were filming for uh, Behind a Work film. And we talked with a gentleman who was part of the Church of God's Seventh Day. And he was asked some interesting questions. He says, do you use the term reverend? The guy who was probably in his 60s, he looked at it and says, I don't. He says, the younger ministers do. (laughs) So they can relate to their peers in other churches. Now, that's just one example of how they have compromised their beliefs. We saw a little sign on a board in the church. It says, try tithing. (laughs) Try it, you'll like it kind of thing. (laughs) You know, the Bible says you shall do these things. These people were saying, try it. (laughs) You You might like it. But there are remnants of these people around. In Revelation 3, verse 7, it talks about a Philadelphia church of God. This little, that has the key of David, has a little strength, has not denied my name. Verse 10, it says, because you have kept my command to persevere, you've hung on, you've preached the gospel, you've worked on your mission. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which is going to come upon the whole world. You're going to be protected during the tribulation. This is what the reward is going to be to the people that do this. The implication is there's going to be a remnant of the Philadelphia era that exists on through the next era. Verse 14, the Laodicean church. This is going to be the dominant church at the end of the age. And some people don't want to talk about this. But we do have to talk about it because what we're told is this Laodicean church, this Laodicean attitude, sit back, laid back, don't get excited, is going to be the dominant attitude at the end of the age. I was talking with a friend of mine in another organization. I said, what are your thoughts on Philadelphia and Laodicea? He said, well, I haven't really thought much about it lately. I'm thinking, come on, come on. (laughs) We're here. It's time. He said, well, I really don't want to comment too much because I haven't studied that lately. When are we going to study it? If we don't talk about these things, people are going to be blindsided. What are the characteristics of a Laodicean church and Laodicean attitudes? I know your works. There will be works. 
there will be works that you're neither cold nor hot. You're not mission-oriented. You're oriented to other things, social things, whatever else. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. How would you like to be part of a church that God says, don't like the taste of that? Somebody's going to be if we have certain attitudes. Because you say I'm rich, and look, we've got plenty of income and wealthy and have need of nothing. I don't need you guys. We're okay. And do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Implication is they're blind. They don't recognize their own condition. That's what the Bible tells us. These are God's people. They're part of God's church, but it says they're blind. They don't recognize their own condition. And there's some people today say, you know, we're all the same. I don't see any differences. I think about what I just said. I don't see any differences. I don't see any differences. What it's saying is they're blind. And the challenge we run into, do you encourage people to join a blind church? Do you encourage people to join a dead church, which is describing Sardis? Again, I'm not talking about condemning. I'm talking about making a decision. The question was asked, do you believe you're the only true church? We just read about four different churches here. Thyatira, remnants still exist. Uh, Sardis, they're still around. Philadelphia, and it does appear, looking back, the real Philadelphia era was under Mr. Armstrong. But the implication is there's going to be a remnant of that that will continue. And then Laodicea is going to be the dominant church at the end of the age. Which church do you want to be part of? Which church would you encourage others to be part of? We're talking about four different eras of the church just here. Another question that was asked. Do you consider evangelical Christianity, although blind to some areas of doctrine, to be false churches? Very interesting question. Do you consider... Evangelical Christianity, although blind in some areas of doctrine, to be false churches. I've heard the question before. You know, they're nice people. They believe in Jesus. They pray. Okay, ask a few questions. Why are they blind to some doctrinal issues? You know, in order to see and understand, you have to have God's spirit. It's God's spirit that opens our minds to understand. So if you're blind, something's missing. How do you receive God's spirit? You repent. You begin to live by the laws of God. You keep the Sabbath. You keep the holy days. I mean, you do what God has instructed you to do. There's a scripture in Revelation 12 and verse 9 that uh, historically we have talked quite a bit about. In the last decade or so, some people don't like to read this because this is exclusive. (laughs) 
This puts somebody down. But notice what it says, Revelation 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. You know, churches that don't keep the Sabbath, that don't understand the plan of God, that believe in going to heaven, that have a long-haired Christ, that believe in the Trinity, they're not following the scriptures. They don't follow what Christ taught. They're deceived. Okay, is a deceived church a false church? You put that one together. <laughs> you know, if, if you don't believe the truth, you're not living by it, then it can't be a true church. It can't be following the teachings of Jesus Christ. There are good people in a lot of these churches. But if they've been deceived, then they've been misled. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Now, it's interesting. You know, Christ was asked some very pointed questions, too. And, you, know, you know, whose wife is a, uh, who is going to be a person's wife, you know, if, he, if, if the guy marries uh, a woman and she dies and then he marries somebody else, you know, whose wife is going to be his wife in the, in the kingdom? You see, look, you don't understand the scriptures. You're leaders in Israel and you can't figure some of these things out. Notice in Matthew chapter 7 re regarding this, this question about uh, false churches. <clears throat> Matthew seven twenty one It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who prays, not everyone who goes to church, not everyone who sings songs, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, that's the person that will be in the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath. Jesus Christ kept the holy days. Jesus Christ tithed. Jesus Christ would have followed the dietary laws. Jesus Christ didn't believe in the Trinity. He who does and she who does the will of my Father, they're the ones that are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, that is when Christ returns, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Didn't we preach? Didn't we hold revivals? Didn't we do a lot of good works, cast out demons in your name, done many wonderful works? And that's what many churches do today. You know, the Waldensian church that's linked up with the Methodists in Italy is basically a, a charity organization. They're into all kinds of charitable things. But they don't keep the Sabbath anymore. You know, I asked the librarian, young lady there in uh, northern Italy, in one of the Waldensian valleys. I said, did these early Waldensians keep the Sabbath? She looked at me and said, some people think they did. <laughs> And some people think they didn't. We found a book in the library in Geneva talking about these people. So they held a big convention about a week long back about the time of the Reformation. It didn't say in the book what they discussed, but they said at the end of the week, the views of the younger ministers prevailed. And they decided to join the Protestant Reformation in Geneva. You know, my guess is that there were some among the Waldensians that kept the Sabbath because history indicates that. 
And it appears there were others, perhaps led by younger ministers, that decided not to. And they joined the Protestant Reformation, letting go part of their heritage. But notice Christ's answer to these people. Nice people that pray, that sing songs, that go to church. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. We weren't on the same page. You were keeping Sunday. If you would have followed Christ, you would have been keeping the Sabbath. You are keeping Christmas. If you would have followed Christ and the disciples, you would have been keeping the holy days. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who are doing your own thing, who have drawn your own conclusions. So we don't consider ourselves the only true church. We are trying to hold true to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And there are others in other organizations that are trying to do the same thing. Do you consider evangelical Christianity, though blind? And again, if you don't have God's spirit, you're going to be blind. You get God's spirit whenever God gives that to you and you have repented, changed, been baptized, and have had hands laid on you. You begin living differently. The Bible pretty much answers its own questions in these areas. But our challenge is to feed the flock of God. Let's look at a couple of more aspects of our mission. Point number four, people, or to, we, part of our mission is to prepare a people to rule with Jesus Christ. Notice in Luke chapter 1, and I've emphasized this on the, the leadership training program that we're working with. The mission of John the Baptist, and we are striving to fulfill that same kind of mission, In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, it says, He will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, from birth. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah kind of appeared out of nowhere with his fiery preaching and so on. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children... You rebuild the family, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Part of our job today is to prepare a group of people to reign with Jesus Christ, Revelation 5 and verse 10. An interesting scripture that goes along with this. You know, part of our challenge, part of our mission is to prepare people to be able to reign wisely, righteously. This is a big problem when you begin looking at governments around the world. They're corrupt. They don't serve the people. They serve themselves. And this is why people are angry and frustrated around the world. Islam is not going to solve that problem. But notice in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 2, which describes the kind of people that we're trying to produce that God wants and needs. And this is kind of a barometer, lets us know how we're doing. It says, whenever the righteous are in authority, people rejoice. When the righteous are in authority, people rejoice. When you're treating people with respect, with love, with understanding, 
But when a wicked man rules, people groan. Think about that if you're a department chairman. How do the people respond in your department? If you're the head of a family. How do the family members feel? He's tough. Mom's bad news. <laughs> is there rejoicing or is there groaning? God is looking for people who will reign and people will enjoy serving under them and living in their kingdom. As opposed to, I don't want to be in his kingdom. <laughs> and this is why we have to learn to reign wisely now. This is a training ground. This is why we're developing a leadership training course so that we can all talk about leadership and learn the 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 skills that, that wise leaders use. Point number five, another aspect of our mission. Matthew 17, verse 11, another description of the ministry of John the Baptist. Mr. Armstrong used to use this all the time. Matthew 17, verse 11. So Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming. And again, he explains John the Baptist was the Elijah that he was talking about and will restore all things. He'll recapture true values. You know, this was the theme of Ambassador College. That mission did not end when Ambassador College closed. The closing of Ambassador College did not mean this mission was discontinued. You know, our challenge and our mission is to continue recapturing true values. If we're going to be reigning with Jesus Christ, we're going to be, we, we're going to need to recapture true values in literally every area of life, not just theological values, but values that help us build strong, sound families to raise wise, balanced, joyful children to restructure economies, to restructure educational systems. You know, developing and, and learning how to appreciate the right kind of literature and the right kind of entertainment, the right way of doing things. Notice in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. <clears throat> this is one of the guidelines that we can use in preparing for the coming kingdom of God. Philippians 4.8. It says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, think on these things, meditate on these things, focus on these things. You know, if we begin to appreciate and recapture true values in literally every area of our life, we're going to be preparing to reign with Jesus Christ. This is part of our mission. You know, in today's world, there's all kind of stuff to read, all kind of novels, all kind of movies to watch. As one book mentioned, people are reading trash today. They watch trash on television picked up a book recently entitled Fantasy in Your Family. Not in your family, but and your family. It's talking about uh, fantasy literature. And as this book was pointing out, 
these things have a bigger impact or are having a bigger impact today on teenage girls than on teenage boys because it gets them doing things that they really shouldn't be doing. What I wanted to focus on, though, is that the author of this book entitled Fantasy in Your Family, the author's name is Abanes, A-B-A-N-E-S. But it talks about guidelines for selecting children's books, which are probably pretty good guidelines for selecting adult books. It says, select books that introduce children to their own cultural heritage. So they learn about the history of their nation, where they're from. Books that enlarge the mind and the imagination, where they think bigger. Enlarge the mind and the imagination. You know, when you read about leadership, read, a books, you know, read books about MacArthur or Eisenhower or people like that or other people, it expands your mind. You get inside of theirs, into the minds of people who have accomplished things. Select books that offer experience in the creative and the scientific inquiry process, where they, they've got to be creative as they read. They've got to think. It's interesting. I've been reading a lot of books to my grandkids. And you read them, and you can see their mind working. They're trying to picture this stuff in their mind that you're talking about. This is mind expanding as opposed to sitting there in front of a television. <laughs> You know, when they hitch people up to an oscilloscope, when they're watching television, the brain waves are almost nil. Instead of being very active, they're straight. You know, it's like you've gone into a trance of some kind. Choose books that encourage the appreciation of beauty and human achievement, motivation, and aspiration. So they aspire to things. I remember reading some books when I was in junior high uh, about football and talked about this one kid that got kicked out of college, went to a small college, but he was a triple threat halfback. He could run the ball, he could kick the ball, and he could throw the ball. And Mr. Bonjour was talking about being versatile. But that was exciting to me. I would go outside and I'd try and pass the ball. And I'd try and pass it with my left hand. I'm not left-handed. <laughs> but I wanted to see if I could do it anyways. I played basketball. I'd shoot with my right hand. But I tried to do it with my left hand, too, just to be, to be versatile that way. Because I had this thing in my mind. I wanted to be this triple threat. <laughs> you know, it, was, it wasn't heavy enough to play football. My dad said, no, you can't play. You'll get hurt. Dad, come on. But uh, he was wise. I watched some guys get beat up pretty bad that were built like I was. But encourage your children and yourself to read books that, that encourage appreciation of beauty, of achievement, motivation, and to aspire to things. And also choose books that allow them to discern right from wrong. Or if you're reading to them, ask them questions. I think one of the Harry Potter books, I think Harry says, or he's, he's told by somebody, well, we should usually tell the truth. Usually. Because <laughs> if you're not telling the truth, you're lying. Should we? Well, is it okay to lie once in a while? See, these are some of the values that are imparted by some of these books that we need to be aware of. <clears throat> but strive to recapture true values. This is part of our mission. The sixth point is to prepare to teach. Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21, where it says in, in, in the kingdom, people are going to see their teachers, and their teachers are going to say, 
This is the way. This is how you do it. This is one of the reasons we need to understand the Bible, need to be studying the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.16, where it talks about study to show yourself approved unto God, being able to rightly divide, appropriately apply the word of God. We need to be doing these things so that we can be preparing to teach in the coming kingdom of God. Final point I want to talk about, which is part of our mission, is that we need to learn to work together in harmony. We need to learn together, work together as a team to accomplish our mission. I get letters and emails from time to time. I don't like this idea of team. We're a family, not a team. (laughs) You know, it's it's sobering. (laughs) But, you know, what were the disciples? They weren't family members. James and John were. Peter and Andrew were. James and John played the family card a couple times. Their mother played the card. Jesus, I've got two wonderful boys. You know, they're loyal to you. They love you. Can they just have the top jobs? Read it in Matthew 19 and 20 where it's talked about. What happened when the other disciples saw them playing the family card? They didn't like it. What are you guys doing? You're trying to get ahead of us. We need to learn to work together as a family and as a team. (laughs) We'll have it both ways. You know, effective families understand the value of teamwork. Effective families understand the value of teamwork. You know, read Ephesians chapter 4 where it talks about the purpose of the body is so that we all work together, so that we can function together as a team to achieve our mission. You know, we need to be mission-oriented instead of position-oriented. We need to be mission-oriented instead of position-oriented. Well, he's got my job. That's my coffee pot. Those are my hymnals. Those are my announcement forms. I need to be passing those out. No, we can take turns. We can grow. We can learn. You know, at headquarters here, we've got to move offices periodic. But that was mine. (laughs) Sometimes in the field, people have to move from one area to another. Those were my people. Sometimes we have to change responsibility. But that was my position. You read John chapter 3 and verse 30. What did John the Baptist say when Christ came? He must increase and I must decrease. He didn't say, I was here first. You know, he came too late. I don't like this decision. No, he set an example for us. Jesus Christ, the night before he was crucified, Matthew 26, verse 39. Father, can you do it another way? This is going to be tough. But it's not my will, but yours. These are the examples that we find in the scriptures. A lot of other principles of learning to work together. We don't judge each other. Well, I know his heart. I know what she's like inside. No, we don't. No, we don't. 
We've got to be careful with that. Did you hear the latest? We don't want to say that. Proverbs says gossip separates close friends. If we don't do these things, we're going to be able to work together much more effectively. Let's look at a final scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul uses this analogy quite a bit. 1 Corinthians 12, he used it in Ephesians 4. talks about the body being made up of many members, different parts, different skills, different aptitudes. But together, they accomplish a lot when the body works together. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For as the body is one, it has many members. But all the members of that body, being many, are one. And down in verse 18 it says, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body as it pleases him. God places us where he wants us. We've got to be patient. We need to work hard at what we've been given to do and not get bent out of shape if our position changes or something moves. God is preparing us for bigger things. We've got to think bigger. God's molding us, fashioning us, preparing us for big jobs. And if we can keep that in perspective, it's going to be a lot easier to make some of the adjustments that we have to make from time to time. But if we can learn to work together in harmony as a team... We're going to be much more effective in fulfilling the mission that we've been given. So as we look back over the sermon, we've talked about seven areas, seven aspects of the mission that God has given us. We're going to be held accountable for fulfilling this mission. And if we put this in contrast to the other missions that people have striven for down through history, democracy is not going to work. Islam is not the solution to world's problems. The United Nations is a sorry hope if people want to put their hope in it because it's not working now. It's not going to work in the future. Uniting Europe, which many people are devoting their lives to, is not going to prevent wars in Europe. The solution to the world's problems is the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. The reign of the saints on this earth with Jesus Christ and the establishing of the kingdom of God on this earth. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar several thousand years ago, the vision is sure. It's going to happen. We have a message to deliver. We have a mission to accomplish. And that mission, brethren, matters. It really does matter. And we have been called to play a part in accomplishing that mission.